Amen. Please be seated. You can turn your Bible to John 17. We'll look at verses 6 through 19 this morning, and the text is also printed in the bulletin on the next page for you. Gods have temples. Gods have temples. Maybe that sounds like something obvious to say. Maybe it sounds like something outdated. I don't know. Gods have temples. That seems to be a universal instinct that we have as humans. You see it throughout history. When you make up a religion, when you fabricate gods, you need a temple or a shrine or some sort of holy meeting place. That's what you need. A place where the god lives or at least where his image dwells. A little statue, a little figurine. A place where you can meet the god, where you can bring offerings, where you can pray, whatever. Right? Gods have temples. Whether you're talking about religion in the traditional sense, and you point to ancient Greece, or you point to Buddhist or Muslim or Mormon temples, or maybe in the more uh, secular modern sense, the temples that we have, um, malls and stadiums. Certain kinds of museums, like maybe the Smithsonian. Humans build special houses for the images of our saviors. We want to know where to go to see salvation, to understand what salvation means. We build special houses for these things, places for remembrance, places for rituals, places for devotion. Scholars will tell you that in ancient Rome, the early Christians actually were accused of being atheists, Partly because they didn't have a temple. They didn't have that structure. They didn't have a building that you could point to, a place, a special place for meeting with their God. Of course, it was a misunderstanding. Christians do indeed have a temple. In fact, it's our God. It's the God of the Bible, the one and only true God who came up with the idea of such a thing as a temple in the first place. Temples came from his mind. It's just that this God's true temple is quite different from the knockoff versions that you see for the counterfeit gods in the world. The true temple can't be found by going on a pilgrimage. You find the fixed coordinates on your GPS, on a map, to a building. The true temple can't be found that way. The true temple is growing and advancing. The true temple comes to you. The true temple isn't constructed of wood or stone. It doesn't house a dead image of its God, sculpted from clay or metal. The living God dwells in a living temple made in his own image, filled with all the fullness of his own glory. The true temple is a house for God's name where people can find mercy and they can find refuge. They can find salvation in a relationship with this living God The God whose very name means God saves. You want to know what salvation is, what it looks like? You go to this God's temple. In our passage, we see Jesus. He's praying on the night that he was betrayed. He's just praying for his friends, just praying for his disciples, his people. And it's the great high priest praying at the consecration of the true temple. That's what's happening in our passage. So let me pray, then we'll read that scripture. Father, we pray that you would teach us from your word, teach us about Jesus, teach us about salvation, 
Teach us about the church, your plans for us, what you're doing in our lives and in the world through us. And we pray that you would not just teach us, but that you would make us uh, warmly accepting your word, that you would cause us to believe your word and to respond to it with faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus continues in his prayer, I've manifested your name to the people whom you have whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, For they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. You're probably wondering where I got the idea of talking about a temple. (laughs) The temple consecration prayer from this passage. I'll explain it. As we go, uh, like I mentioned already, the idea of a temple originated in God's own mind. We see it in the very beginning. Let's take a kind of a whirlwind tour of the Old Testament, um, through the Old Testament on this theme, and we'll talk about the tabernacle and the temple. Just briefly, let me explain. The tabernacle in Israel's history was a tent, a meeting place. The temple was the actual wood and stone building, right? And there. There's continuity between those things. The tabernacle and the temple are uh, pretty much the same thing. It's where God's presence dwelt, the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, So we'll talk about that. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The prophet Isaiah sees this as God making a sort of a cosmic tabernacle. The prophet Isaiah says it. Several times, the heavens being stretched out like, a, like tent curtains and the earth being spread and filled with good things like a table, a place for intimate encounter with God, a place for a feast. And this was God's intention for the whole world from the beginning, which, of course, we rejected when we rebelled against him in our effect, our sin, was an attempt to tear down the tent and kick over the table, but God is never thwarted in his purposes. 
And he wouldn't leave it at that. He would make the heavens and the earth new in order to be with us, to meet with us. And the history of the Old Testament shows him at this work incrementally, in stages, in pictures, in promises of this great ultimate cosmic work yet to come. After the Exodus, God had delivered his people, saved them. He's their savior. He's brought them out of Egypt. He gives Israel instructions for building a literal tabernacle, this actual tent. It was meant to be a picture of his original intention and his continuing intention for the new heavens and the new earth. That's what the tabernacle is meant to be a picture of. It says in Hebrews 8, the tabernacle is called a a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. Exodus 25, God gives Israel a detailed pattern. Lasts several chapters. A detailed pattern to be followed exactly for the building of the Ark of the Covenant, which was the, the super special place that was in the holiest of holy places. It's the place where God would meet with the high priest and with his people <clears throat> through the, the representation, the substitution, uh, the vicariousness of the high priest. The Ark of the Covenant description was given for how to make that. The table for bread, the golden lampstand, the dimensions and decorations of the tent itself, the curtain and the material and the decorations on it, the, the bronze altar for sacrifices and altar for incense, which is representative of the, the prayers of God's people. A bronze basin for washing, cleansing, baptisms. Even the courtyard outside at the entrance was, you know, description and detailed pattern given for what the outside of the tent would be like as people are making their way in to meet with God. His pattern for this sanctuary, he gives them this pattern so that he would dwell in the midst of his people. Moses called it the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting. The pattern came from God's own mind. It was not the invention of just religious humanity. Just like the creation of the heavens and the earth as a meeting place between God and humanity, it's not, it's not our idea. It's his idea. It was before our time. God is the one who came up with the idea because he wanted to. He wanted to create a place where he could dwell with people that he made in his own image, a place for intimate encounter with God, a place for feasting and the fullness of joy in God's presence. And this special, holy meeting place would be central to the life of his people. And the cool thing about this, the the tent, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was that it was mobile. It would go before them. They would pack it up and carry it. And it would be out there in front. The Ark of the Covenant would be out in front of the nation of Israel. It would go before them in the world, into the wilderness, into the nations. The place where God meets with his people, advancing and overthrowing the enemy. And storming the gates of hell and setting the world right. The temple in Jerusalem, where it would come to be, in the city of God's people, which came later, was, was immobile. But it's the same idea, basically, on a grander scale, something to become famous throughout the world so that the nations would hear of it, and they would come, and they would come to know the Lord. 
God called it a house for my name. And when he promised to David that it would be built, he said, your son is going to build it. Your son is going to build a house for my name. And in the scriptures, God's name, he didn't just say it's a house for me. He said it's a house for my name. And his name represents him, represents who he is, represents what he's like. But it's the, the reputation, it's the character. It's his goodness, but it's the, the reputation of his goodness, right? His true reputation. It's how he's known by people in the world. It's how he's introduced to people for relationship with people. That's the name of the Lord. You give someone your name when you want to get to know each other. And this is a house for getting to know each other, God says. A house for his name. The temple is a place for him to be revealed for relationship and to be known, not just by his own people, Israel, ethnically, nationally, but all nations. That's Solomon's prayer. Uh, uh, It's all of 1 Kings 8. Nathan read some of the middle of 1 Kings chapter 8 when Solomon built Israel's first and great temple. Solomon is David's son, and he built this temple in Jerusalem, and he prayed at the consecration, the dedication of that temple. That prayer has several parallels with our passage, actually has several parallels also with the Lord's Prayer that we recite pretty much every Sunday that you know by heart. Um, And one of the aspects of that prayer is that when foreigners hear about this temple, and when they come and they pray, would you hear them and would you forgive? Would you make yourself known to them as the forgiving God? Go and read all of 1 Kings 8. You'll see a lot of language that connects it, especially to our chapter in John 17. But let me just point out the obvious historical fact that Solomon's temple is no longer here. Solomon's temple didn't last. It wasn't the end-all, be-all, God's idea for the temple. Remember, this, this temple, the one that Solomon built, is patterned after God's cosmic universal vision for the whole of creation, the heavens and the earth, being the place for a joyful meeting with God, the place where his name is known, where you get to know him, where he's revealed to you for relationship, where his name rests and dwells forever, but cosmically, the whole heavens and the earth. And four centuries after Solomon, the prophet Ezekiel told of this, he had this apocalyptic vision, this apocalyptic temple was coming. Right? It was coming on an even grander scale than Solomon's famed temple that had been heard of by nations in all the corners of the world. But this temple was coming with, with more significance, even more significance for the whole world than ever before. And this vision that Ezekiel had, this promise that God was making about his temple, it was fulfilled in Jesus. It was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Not because, as a carpenter, he one-upped Solomon single-handedly overseeing the construction of a great cathedral. The only wood that Jesus used to build his temple was the cross that he was crucified on. Where he died for the forgiveness of sins, but, but his death, even though it was his death, his death had the effect of building a new edifice out of living stones. That's Ephesians 2. Ephesians has a lot of temple language in it. Ephesians 2, Christ himself is the cornerstone, and he's building us all up into a holy temple in the Lord. In Jesus, 
God came into the world in the flesh, John says earlier in his gospel, to tabernacle among us, to dwell among us, to be himself the holy meeting place between God and humanity. And as we are in him by faith, we as people around the world are this new promised tabernacle, this new temple growing and spreading and advancing and making God known everywhere we go. In our passage, Jesus' prayer is a prayer at the consecration of this new temple. He says, he has manifested God's name. He has made known God's name to his people. He has built a house for God's name. Just as God said that the son of David would do. Through his sacrifice, he's built a a place. It's not a place, it's a people. Where God meets with people like us. God's image in his temple. That's us. We're made in God's image. We're being renewed in God's image. His image in the temple is alive. God's glorious presence fills the temple. His, His Holy Spirit fills the temple with all his fullness. And that's called the assembly That's called the church. It's not that the church has a temple. It's that the church is the temple, the people, the people of God. We are the temple. Jesus has made the church to be the place where God is known for relationship, where God is known for salvation. This came from God's own initiative. These people... Jesus says, these people belonged to you. They didn't come here because of their initiative. They came because they belong to you and you gave them to me. And I'm praying for them because they belong to you. God the Father gave them to his son, Jesus. This is all of God's initiative, just like the temple was always meant to be, of God's initiative. Jesus spoke God's word to these people. In fact, Jesus was himself God's very word, spoken by God to us. And those who belong to God, we hear his voice, and we respond with faith. And It's almost laughable to us when Jesus says, these people have responded to you with faith. They've kept your word. They've believed. When almost every instance you see of the disciples in the Gospels is them doing it wrong and sinning and not believing. Um, But we do hear his voice and respond. We know that Jesus comes from God, however faltering we are, in following him and responding to his call. We know that Jesus comes from God. We know that he reveals God to us. We don't believe it perfectly. We don't always respond to him perfectly, but in his temple we hear him and we answer. We hear him and we answer in our wrestling ways, but we're answering. In the midst of the assembly present with us in the temple, Jesus, our great high priest, prays for us. He's taken us out of the world. That doesn't mean he's physically located us somewhere in the space-time continuum off this planet. He's taken us out of the world, out of uh, the midst of those whose um, life is defined by rebellion against God, always and only. He's taken us out of that and brought us into his own kingdom. He prays for us especially because we're precious to him. We're his precious inheritance. And he loves us in a special way, not because of anything particularly special about us. There really isn't anything unique about us in and of ourselves that sets us apart from other people in the world, but because the Father gave us to him and we belong to him.
And so he loves us, and so he prays for us. He is the one who sets us apart. In other language, he is the one who consecrates us. He's the one who sanctifies us. He's the one who makes us holy. In the Greek, those are all the same word. Holiness and sanctification and consecration are all the same word. And now you see that word shows up a lot in our passage. Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name, that they may be one. And this is something we'll talk about more next week, this oneness, this unity. But his, his desire as our great high priest is that we would dwell in the refuge of God's holy name. That God would keep us in that holy name, which means reconciliation, it means unity, it means communion, it means being fastened together as a solid structure relationally. In our relationships to God and in our relationships to each other in the name of Jesus Christ. Since the holy name of God is manifested in Christ himself, it means that God will keep us in Christ by faith. He'll keep us there as a response to Jesus' prayer here because we're a house for God's name. We're the house that God is building, the house that Jesus is building for for God's name, the temple, the tent of meeting that God himself is spreading over all the earth. The place where Christ's own joy, which is the joy of his relationship to God as his father, It's a place where Christ's own joy is being fulfilled, he says, he prays for, in people coming to know the Lord. So in his prayer, far from fearing for our well-being in a world that hates us, he says very clearly several times in the gospel and in our passage, the world hates us because we no longer belong to it, we belong to him. We're not of the world just as he's not of the world. This is a great privilege that he's given us, but it also means some physical danger in a world like this. But he's not afraid for our well-being. Far from hoping that God would just whisk us out of the dangerous world to safety, he actually says, I'm not praying for that. He prays that we would fulfill God's vision for the global temple. That we would be in the world, but not of the world. That we would be in it. And that we'd be kept from the evil one, even though we suffer persecution. Not that we would retreat behind the strong walls of a monastery or otherwise live a fearful life where we fortress ourselves off from the world and over against the world. It's not what he's hoping for us. He's praying that we would be sent just as Jesus himself was sent. God the Father sent him into the world. He says, in the same way I'm sending them. I pray that they would be sent. He prayed in verse 17 that we would be sanctified and consecrated, dedicated, set apart, made holy as a living temple in the truth of his word. His word isn't just something for himself. God's word goes out. It goes forth. From him. It is spoken out into the world. You speak words to have relationships with others in the world. That's how God's word works. And that's the word in which we are being set apart. So this prayer means that 
that we're more like that mobile tabernacle in Israel's history. We're more like the mobile tent, picking up stakes, moving around in the wilderness among the nations. We're more like that than the stationary temple. We're advancing. We're carrying the presence of God forth into enemy territory. We're storming the gates of hell, which will not prevail against us and the gospel that we carry. Like Israel, remember Jericho, inspired by the commander of the Lord's army who said when he arrived, you're now in holy, on holy ground because I'm here, because we're meeting. This place is holy. And he announces the Lord's presence. And they take the ark of the tent of meeting and with trumpets and shouts, they surged into the promised land. The church goes forth in the proclamation of Jesus Christ, and we topple spiritual strongholds. Not with military might. We overthrow the devil's power. His power and all his aim is to keep people separate from God. And we can overcome that with the gospel as we carry it forth in the world. People can't be kept apart from God anymore. Verse 18, Jesus prays, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. He means for us to be more like first responders, rushing toward catastrophe. When everybody else runs screaming, thinking it would be insane to go anywhere near that, he means for us to rush toward it, setting up medical tents on the battlefield, We take the gospel of Jesus Christ into the world where people are explosively hostile to God and to one another. And to us as we go. But we proclaim his peace as we go. And his gospel will have the victory. He means us to pitch our tents in the wilderness. In foreign lands, not just in our backyards. He means our tents to stretch and spread and to give shade and refreshment where otherwise it would only be blazing, scorching heat in the world. Even Solomon prayed this way about his his immobile temple. In 1 Kings 8, he says that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I've built is called by your name. He wants everybody in the whole world to come to know God. God is known as the God who comes into the world to seek and to save the lost of his own initiative. He comes and he wants to be known as the God who does that, a God who has a heart for all kinds of people everywhere. The church being the place where his name dwells means that we're sent. We're sent to make him known to all kinds of people everywhere. And often this mission of love goes about as well for us as it went for Jesus himself, who ended up on the cross. We need to be strengthened by his love in order to love like him. That's why he says in his prayer, for their sake, for their sake I consecrate myself, I sanctify myself, I set myself apart, I make myself holy. For their sake so that they also may be sanctified, consecrated, made holy, set apart in the truth. For Jesus to consecrate himself for our sake 
meant his death on the cross where he loved and faced the hatred of the world. That's what true holiness is. Giving yourself for love's sake, no matter what, so that the other may know God and come into true relationship with him. Jesus did that for us so that we would be holy like he is, set apart, consecrated, so that we would do that for others. God said it many times as he's addressed his people, be holy because I'm holy. And this is what that means. His image is renewed in us. His image comes to life in our holy love. The true temple doesn't just house an image of a God. The true temple is a house made of people who are in God's image, who are holy like he is holy, who love like he loves, who sacrifice themselves like he sacrificed himself. His love mortars us together as God's living temple, and his love sends us forth as his advancing tabernacle. By his sacrifice and through his prayer as your great high priest, you've already been consecrated as this holy meeting place in the world. Go, therefore, into all the world with the good news of Jesus, sanctified with his own love, and we will see God stretch out a new heavens and spread out and fill a new earth and fulfill his own cosmic vision to be with his people forever. We will see that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as the Apostle Paul prayed, we pray now that you would enable us through your Holy Spirit who strengthens us to comprehend what is the height and width and depth and breadth of your love, those dimensions being seen in your temple, those dimensions describing the people for whom you have died. We see your love when we look at the church. We see your plan. We see your vision for the new heavens and the new earth. When we look at your church, we're bought with the blood of your own son. We pray that we would not just see that, but that we would believe it, that we would enter into this reality called the assembly, those who meet together with you, this this place of uh, holy meeting between God and humanity. We pray that we would become part of that if we're not, that we would believe it and perceive it and see it shaping all of our lives, all of our mission, our, our purpose in this world, so that in all things your name might be made known, not just sung and uh, prayed among ourselves, but made known in all the world so that all the nations might know, they might see, they might look to the church even and see a house for your name and see that you are good and see your love and embrace it through faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.